0: Hello and welcome to This Week at Charlestown Road, a branch of the Heavenbound podcast. My name is Jason Harden. I'm here with Roger Shouse, and this is where we reflect on the weekend that was. We dig a little deeper into a recent sermon to give you something to think about as this week unfolds and preview what's to come this next weekend at Charlestown Road. Well, this past Sunday, Jason had the honor of preaching, and he is
1: a uh... It's kind of part two of a sermon he addressed a couple weeks ago about the glory of the Lord, about Moses from the book of Exodus wanting to see the glory of God, and God spun him around and wouldn't let him see it until he passed by and could see the backside. Well, this is the other part of that lesson, and uh, fits very well with our theme this year, bringing the best. In this first quarter, we're talking about the glory of the Lord. But this was kind of a fascinating lesson, and, and this is a lesson that's on our Uh, website really encourage y'all to go back it's something that's just not talked about very often and in the religious community this is something that has just gone to the wayside um as you think about a lot of things that have kind of passed away, you know, there's a lot of stores that a lot of us grew up with are no longer around. Uh, our kids and grandkids are going to grow up and say, hey, what do you mean by a landline? They, <laughs> they have no idea what a landline was and things like that. Well, one of the things I think uh, is just missing in a lot of conversations and lessons and topics, that is the justice of God. And so this sermon kind of walked us through the justice of God. And so right out, right away, before we we flip it back to Jason and talk about going through the sermon, the highlights of the sermon, we need to ask ourselves: uh, just what does justice have to do with the glory of God? Because yeah. you know, we we think about glory, we think about God's shining or God's might, but justice. Sometimes we have a hard time fitting that in.
0: Yes, and I I mean, I'm just going to be really honest with you. I would have loved to have preached from this text two weeks ago and then moved on to something else, but um, it just did not seem right to use this text two weeks ago and look at the really pleasant side of it and then not look at the way God balances uh this revelation to Moses. Of course, it all comes from Exodus 33 and 34. Um, Israel is being sent away from Mount Sinai, and at first God tells him, you know what, you all go, I'm not going to dwell among you on this journey because I would consume you. This comes uh, in the wake of the construction of that Uh, golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. But Moses intercedes and pleads with God. And so God tells him that his presence will go with the people from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And Moses just very straightforwardly asks, please show me your glory. And what's fascinating to me is God doesn't make Mount Sinai split in half. He doesn't split Uh, another sea. He doesn't have fire come down from heaven. What he does is pass by Moses and make a proclamation as he does. And we read it in Exodus 34, verses six and seven. That proclamation is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we talked about those wonderful ideas two Sundays ago. But, he continues, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And at that point, Moses quickly bows his head, toward the earth, and, and he worships. And so what does justice have to do with glory? Well, God is the one manifesting his glory. He brings up justice, and so we are not either receiving or sharing an accurate view of God's glory if all we ever do is talk about Mercy and grace and being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's a beautiful part of it, but there is a second part to his glory. And if God shared it, then we need to wrestle with it. And live beneath it. Yeah, and and that's just an aspect that's just so hard for people to think about.
1: Everybody wants a God who loves, and everybody wants a God who's like a grandpa. He's going to spoil us, pat us on the head, and just kind of say, "Go down the road, be happy," and we can get away with all kinds of things because we can fool our grandpas. And <laughs> and it's just it's just uh, life is good in the neighborhood. That's that's how a lot of people perceive that. But all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we find about God's justice. We find about God striking people down. We find God punishing his own people. Uh, The book of Hebrews tells us it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so there's a concept, there's a side of God to get the true image of who God is. It's both, and it's not a choice, nor is it as something that God has changed the God of the Old Testament right. was mean, but the God of the New Testament is nice. <laughs> that's, that's not true. Or God of the Old Testament was all about wrath and sending fire down and destroying people, but the God of the New Testament just forgives. That's not a true picture either. And so to, to, to truly know God, to understand God, we have to look at both sides. And we have to understand there is a reason for his justice, and and your lesson really brought a lot of that out. Uh, and so, so let's just walk through a little bit of your lesson, sure, and, and, and then we'll talk about some things.
0: You know, you highlighted or, or quoted just a moment ago Hebrews 10.31, and I think that's a great lens through which to look at this fearful idea, right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The New Testament tells us, and we spent just a little bit of time on Sunday morning looking at some examples of that. You know, it's interesting, even Exodus 34 is not the first time that that language is used. It's actually in the Ten Commandments, where God is instructing the people not to build an idol, not to make this graven image, and he describes himself as a jealous God and then goes on to describe himself in much the same ways we just read from Easy or from Exodus chapter thirty-four. It is reiterated once the spies go up and look in the land of Canaan in Numbers chapter fourteen, and they come back and they say, "Well, it is amazing, but there's no way we will ever be able to to take it on our own." and as judgment is being handed down in Numbers 14, this comes up again, right? And we see it in living color. Uh, there is uh, an older generation who has rebelled against the Lord. They are going to die in the wilderness, but their children will be the ones who wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until uh, that entire generation has passed away. Another thread that you can easily trace through the Old Testament is the sins of Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 13 and 14 and 15. You can read all about wicked King Jeroboam, you know, where the children of Israel set up a, a golden calf at Mount Sinai. Jeroboam builds two of them. And what's tragic is that That iniquity isn't contained to that one king or even that one generation. We read about the ripple effects of Jeroboam's sin for generations to come. Same sort of thing in 2 Kings chapter 23 with uh, the last king in Judah, Jehoiakim. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and this is essentially the end of the kingdom of Judah. But as that tragic end is being described, there are previous generations Mention, In fact, four generations before, our narrator mentions Manasseh. Well, that was the great-great-grandfather of Jehoiakim. And um, as you look at those historical examples, then you can mingle in some poetic descriptions. I mean, in Lamentations chapter 5, we read the lament of these children of Israel saying, we are bearing the iniquity of our fathers. Or in Psalm 79, the prayer is, don't remember against us the iniquities of former generations. But that is exactly what God says is happening. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 65, uh, what a vivid picture. I I will indeed repay into their lap. I'm going to set in their lap, not just their iniquities, but the iniquities of their forefathers. I, I said in the sermon, Roger, pretty early on, you know, this is a challenging thing to wrap your mind around and i i i feel like i'm i'm still you know wrapping my mind around it a little but thank god there is the good news of the gospel in the new testament and that's that's really where we ended that yes this this happened because god is holy and he means what he says Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and iniquity is serious, but how powerful when he says, my son will pay the price for your iniquities. That's something different. That's something special, and that, of course, is the good news that we're we're living in the light of today.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of people that, that want heaven, but they just don't want hell to exist. And they just want God just to be a God of love and yeah. not justice. Now, th- there, are, there are stories, and, and I'm right with you. There are stories that I, I have a hard time getting it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in, in the book of Joshua, after Achan stole the gold and everything, mm. and, and, and his punishment was not just that he would be killed, but his sons and his daughters. Yeah. And you might think, well, why kill them? And then when King Saul was supposed to go and, and attack King Agag and in, in that country, and the phrase is to utterly destroy them. Yeah, that just seems, you know, in, in our culture today, it just seems so mean. Why would you do that? But again, when, when you put that to, he is holy, and he means what he says, and iniquity is serious. You put, but those three things there that helps us to understand it so much more, and. And for God to be holy uh, you can you cannot be holy if he 's looking the other way right and and justice demands punishment on certain things, and so that's that 's where this fits in and that's that 's the picture we have of God well one of the one of the expressions that came out early in your lesson uh, was the third and fourth generation. yeah uh, we began my class uh, Sunday by talking about that very phrase. Third generations, that's where I'm at. I'm a grandpa, okay? My children are the second generation. My grandkids are the third generation. I asked my class how many people remember their great-grandparents. A few put their hands up. Uh, I couldn't do that. Uh, that's four generations. And so uh, when we think about God bringing justice upon the third and the fourth generation, um that that just seems funny for us because yeah. we think, okay, if the person did wrong, why are you going all these other generations and still continuing that? And one of the passages that uh, Bible students will, will think about is here in uh, Ezekiel 18. Sure. Where in verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor, the son, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. Righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked be upon him. And so, you know, when we read a passage like that, it, it just comes to our mind. If you do the crime, you do the time. That's, right. that, that's very logical. But then we start throwing in third and fourth generation. We say, well, wait a minute.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up Ezekiel 18. It is a, a, a very close mirror of one of the passages I referenced there at the very end, Jeremiah chapter 31. And I I went back and forth as to which one to include. They both, interestingly, uh, quote this proverb. It was this saying that was apparently going around Israel at that point. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You know, if you, if I eat something sour, uh, there's no reason to expect uh, the mouths of any one of my daughters is suddenly going to be set on edge. But that was the proverb that was going around. And we've got a sense of why in Ezekiel chapter 18. We'll we'll go back and, and look at the hypothetical that is painted in just a moment. But what was lingering in the air? If you look at that chapter in verse 25, there were those who were saying, the way of the Lord is not Just And God gives them a talking to, Uh, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. And he goes on from there. And so clearly God is answering one question or one principle that we need to be rock solid on. If a righteous person turns away from righteousness and does what is unrighteous, there are going to be consequences for that. And if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and turns to what is right, then God says he or she will save their life. And so rock bottom foundational here is God is going to hold each individual accountable, okay? What we are describing by going back and reading Exodus 34, for instance, is not what is sometimes described in the broader religious world as a generational curse or generational sin where I sin and then that sin is inherited or passed on to my child or grandchild or great-grandchild, that is not even an accurate handling of that language in Exodus 34, that God visits the iniquity on. Okay, so Ezekiel 18, Jeremiah chapter 31, those passages are invaluable to help us understand we are individually accountable to God. But... There can be ripple effects of iniquity that are felt by successive generations. And I think the point of the sins of Jeroboam or the sins of Manasseh really flow from this that, listen, if Jeroboam introduces idolatry and then his children don't turn from idolatry and his children, grandchildren don't turn from idolatry, and his great-grandchildren don't turn from idolatry, that ripple effect turns into a tidal wave in Israel's history that just destroys the entire nation.
1: Yeah, and, and I've I seen this also. There's a difference between who's responsible, who committed the sin, mm-hmm. and then the consequence of that. Right. And some, sometimes uh, we, we see this in our life. You know, a, a father's driving a car, and he's drunk. He shouldn't be driving. Uh, but he crashes and his kids in that car are killed. Yeah. Well, well, who's, who's responsible? Well, the father who, the drunk father who's driving, but the consequence is the kids were the ones who were killed. And so th- this, this third and fourth generation is kind of a ripple effect, as you said, because the consequences and they, n- not just that the father had sinned or this king had sinned but he's teaching his children to do the same. right? And throughout the study of the kings and, and, and Judah and Israel, especially with Judah, we see flip-flopping. We, we see out of bad kings came good kings. Right. Out of good kings came bad kings. Well, why is it that way? It's the choices that they made, and God is holding those responsible for that. And I yeah. think that's just uh, really important to see that. Now, when we talk about the justice of God, We just need to also mention this. How does this fit in with the love of God? Because they seem to be polar opposites. Uh, Either God loves or God's full of wrath. And very
0: few people can see that both of them can exist at the same time. Well, what helps me is the word picture in Psalm 89, verse 14, where righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. But then you have steadfast love and faithfulness flowing from his throne. And so think about that for a moment. The foundation of his throne is what is right and what is just. Again, God means what he says, and he is going to be perfectly faithful to what he says. He alone is holy unspotted, unstained, right? But from his throne flow steadfast love and faithfulness. And so I would suggest to you, the reason that we are able to experience his steadfast love is because God means what he says. He is holy. He loves First, right, but for us to say well i 'm interested with what flows from his throne, but i'm not interested in his perfect holy character i 'm not interested in the foundation of his throne. Well, we both know you destroy the foundations of something, and what is flowing from it ceases to flow, yeah, you know and, and there's so many analogies and parallels between god
1: and our relationship and the parent-child relationship Uh, parents love their children we just love them to death we would give our life for our children but there are days we feel like putting them out with the trash okay (laughs) so so mom and dad are out on a date and they come home and their uh, middle school child says well dad i decided to paint the tv screen and you looked at it, he just ruined that thing. Well, well, is the father going to say, thank you, I've always wanted a red TV screen? No. Is he going to just sit down and say, I just love you so much, I don't care? No, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be some severe consequences to that. But does that mean the father no longer loves? Absolutely not. Because he loves... He does things. He tries to get better behavior. And, and it's the same way with God. If we say, if God really loved me, he would never have justice. He would never punish me. Well, then he really doesn't love you. Because if he really loves you, he wants you to do what's right. He wants right. you to spend eternity with him. So we have choices, and we have behaviors, and we have attitudes that don't line up with him. So he's going to try to get us to change that. And through the justice of God, the discipline of God, as Hebrews 12 talks about, through those things, we get right with God. And, and that's, again, an aspect of that we need to
0: appreciate. Um, do we find such language as this in the New Testament? Not really. I, you know, I I mentioned in the sermon, I was not taught to pray like this. I was not taught to to even think like this as someone living on this side of the cross. And I think maybe a good passage if our listeners want to dig a little deeper into why is where we ended there in Jeremiah 31, where God says something new is going to to come. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with uh, Israel's fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And of course, that that description in Jeremiah 31 changes with, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that is what sets us up for the new covenant, right? The new way of having a relationship through Jesus Christ. But the way that we landed the sermon was, this is only possible if someone pays the price for sin. Sin is serious and it always comes with a cost. And tragically, throughout the Old Testament, we read about this just rolling and rolling and rolling generation after generation after generation. But what we experience in Jesus is the forgiveness of iniquity, uh, the, the remembrance of sin no more. And I would suggest to you, that's why we don't run across this sort of language in the New Testament.
1: We do, we do to a little degree. I want to disagree with you just okay. a little bit. To just a little uh, bit. We, we have an Acts 5. Okay. Uh, the striking down of Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Um, the first, really the first martyrs in the church. They weren't really martyrs. <laughs> they died in punishment. Uh, we find a second Timothy 4 where, uh, Paul talked about Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He says the Lord will repay him okay, according got you. to his deeds. I, got you. Now, now, I thought now,
0: you were talking about the third and fourth oh, yeah, generation Now, now we, don't,
1: we don't find the third and fourth, but, yes. but we do. what we do find is the justice of God. No doubt. And And so it's important for us to understand that when we talk about this Concept. This is not just an Old Testament concept. No, this is not a, that God changed when Jesus came. God has been the same. Uh, Jesus would say in the Book of Hebrews, "I am the same yesterday, today, and forever." God doesn't change. So, so these principles that God loves us, God also is just. God is holy. God means what He says. Those are eternal principles that we find all through our Bible.
0: And lessons that we really need to appreciate. You know, I think a a simple verse to attach to that, now that I understand what you were getting at. uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 6. He will repay to each one according to his works. That, that comes immediately after Paul in Romans 2 4 saying, speaking of a day of wrath when god's righteous judgment will be revealed clearly righteous judgment is not just an old testament concept yeah
1: and and to kind of wrap this up and kind of kind of put a closure to this we we understand in the religious community this is so little talked about yeah and it's not balanced it's not balanced preaching it's not balanced thinking it's not balanced theology I've got granddaughters that that are in gymnastics, and they walk across that balance beam. And you've got to you've got to have your weight right in the middle, a little left, little right. And you're going to go off that beam. And when we when we're leaning too much, that just God loves me, and everything's covered by the grace of God. It really doesn't matter. Uh, that's not true to the biblical picture. And so we need to have that balance and understand that God loves you. God is holy. But God's also just, yeah. and He means what He says, and
0: we need to appreciate that. Yeah, uh, Paul in Acts chapter twenty said to the Ephesian elders, "I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If God revealed Himself in this way, then, like we said a few minutes ago, we need to wrestle with that, and then we need to humbly live." beneath that whole council of God. I appreciate the opportunity, Roger, to, to revisit that. Uh, I mentioned to our church family, it, it was wading into a little bit of deeper waters, but I was really encouraged by the feedback and uh, appreciate the opportunity to revisit it with you. Of course, this is Wednesday, and 7 o'clock p.m., you're going to be teaching in the auditorium.
1: Yes, we continue our series on expectations, and so tonight we're going to talk about what.
0: Should What should I expect when I open that Bible? and we'll just see what happens. Excellent. In our building blocks track of studies, we're wrapping up a little four-part series where we've been exploring what does it mean to be holy and we're going to land that series by talking about how holiness means we grow to be like our Father in heaven. Roger, you're scheduled to preach this Sunday morning at 9:30 a.m. Yes, and we're wrapping up our four-part series from John 13 to
1: 15 where Jesus was leaving and he and he kind of sets some instructions for them. So we're going to talk about the trifold hope that Jesus gives to his apostles
0: before he leaves. Excellent. On Sunday evening, 5 o'clock PM. I'm planning on going back to Hebrews chapter 12 and looking at this fascinating phrase about the blood of Jesus how it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We'll dig into that and see if we can't figure out what's being described there. But Roger, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you, and we appreciate so much all of our listeners for listening to this week at Charlestown Road. It would be great to see you at 7 o'clock p.m. tonight. We're already looking forward to Sunday, the best day of the week, and we would love to have you come and grow with us.